Hey, everybody. Welcome to CMO Conversations. As you can see, today I'm joining you from my living room. The times have changed and we are not in the CMO Conversations gallery that we have in our office here at Drift, but I'm still Trisha. I'm the CMO of Drift. And every other week, I am coming to you live with another CMO trying to address for you the challenges and changes that are happening in the marketing landscape by having conversations with great CMOs from all different businesses, industries, and parts of the market. So today, I'm joined by Robin Daniels. Robin and I worked together 10 years ago, and since then, he left Salesforce, went to Box, went to a couple of startups, was at LinkedIn. Most notably, his last job was the CMO of WeWork, which obviously had a very interesting, tumultuous end. And today is his second day, a new company called Matterport. So Robin, thanks for joining us here on CMO Conversations. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. How's it going? It's good, but I think your week is probably the most interesting because you're starting a new job while like pretty much the whole country is in lockdown from their house. So how has it been starting a role as a new CMO, new company, new team, remote from your house? I won't lie. It was the oddest first day I ever had in my life. I mean, meeting my team all over Zoom was just an odd experience. It, it was totally fine, but it's just not quite how I anticipated it going. You know, when you come in as a new leader of a team, you're both excited to meet all your peers. You're excited to meet all the people who are going to be working for you and with you. And it's just an odd way to kind of get introduced to people using Zoom because everyone is kind of in their own little box. And so it was fine. It was just it was just a little odd not being able to go over and shake people's hands or hear their stories or feel their energy and everything else. But this is the new reality. This is what we're going to have to all work through in the next couple of months. So we're totally adapting and it's fine and it's going to be, we can still be productive and you can still create meaningful connections. It's just different than I think what most of us would have anticipated how our start would have been, but it's fine. Yeah. And how big is your team? My team is just around 20 people. So just just some context. So just, yeah, this is my second day at Matterport. Last year, I was the CMO of WeWork, and that was a, quite a crazy ride that maybe we can talk about at some other point in time. Yeah. But I got introduced to Matterport, actually, when I was at WeWork, because we used Matterport to scan and do the, the virtual walkthroughs of a lot of our buildings. Oh, that and makes so sense. What Ma- I can see that. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, if, if you're trying to get a tour of a building in Manhattan or in London, you can just do it from the comfort of your, your laptop. You know, just virtually. And so I was always super impressed with the technology. And as I dug into it a little bit more, I saw how Matterport is really trying to map the physical world using really advanced 3D cameras and technology. And so now if you want to go buy a house, if you want to get a tour of an office space or anything like that, you can go do it from the comfort of your house. And of course, during a time like this, when everybody's sequestered at home, you're just seeing a spike in the use of 3D tours and technology to actually get a sense of what it's like out there in the real world. So it's, it's really interesting technology and I'm super excited to join it. It's interesting you mentioned that because just in the past like three weeks, we've seen a huge spike on drift of people mm. interested in the real estate, yeah. you know, this space because they're really trying to figure out how do we retool this business, which I mean, 
who knows for history, it's been the same, right? I mean, you saw that on the commercial side, changing it at WeWork, but on the residential side, it's been pretty much the same. Like you go tour around in the car with your agent. And, and so we've seen people like really being innovative and thinking about like, how can we keep this business going in the shape of the new world? And I think you're probably in a great place now, hopefully with Matterport, because one, hopefully all of this goes away. Like, people are still going to be interested in looking at spaces from the comfort of their living room and like not having That's to right. give a Sunday to like drive all over the place. Exactly. And you know, at the heart of it, I'm the kind of marketing person who loves storytelling. And I joined because it's so ripe for storytelling. I mean, the, I just read today that Redfin have seen a 500% increase in virtual tours just in the last week, which makes sense, right? Of course, you know, all these people who are now sitting at home want to actually still look at houses and look at the the physical world, but they can't because we're sequestered home. So there's just, there's so much opportunity for storytelling and using these amazing use cases to really elevate what the conversation is all about. And then when you take it a, a, a step higher, I think, well, what is the future going to look like if everyone starts using this technology? Imagine Instead of 100 people driving to an open house to see that open house, you can just do it from the comfort of your home. Think about the climate impact that we have if that happens. Now multiply that by 1,000, 100,000, a million. I mean, it's just, there's all this interesting things that will happen if we start actually being a little bit smarter about how we digitize everything and provide an interface to that physical world, but through the comfort of our phone, laptop, and so on. Yeah, that's amazing. And I know like in my own house, we actually have a full legal unit that we rent out. And mm-hmm. so when I was CMO of Salesforce in Canada, I was like having to do like walkthroughs and things like that, like remotely, like arranging for people <laughs> to see the keys and whatever. But I have other friends who have units in the city and they had people who were going to be students at the university because their house that they have for rent was like right by the university. And the people are saying like, oh, I'm a professor and I'm going to be coming from Japan. And so they're like, is there a way you can just like do a FaceTime with me to walk around your apartment? And they're like, I guess so. Like this seems crazy, but with like a tool that can actually do the layouts and the virtual tours, it's like definitely like beneficial. I think you hit on a point, which is one of the things like we worked together before doing product marketing and you were always like really good at looking at like, what is that story? What is that message? I mean, what would your advice be to other marketers of like how they can build storytelling into the way that they're doing their marketing? Because I think it's such a key thing today. For sure. For sure. I mean, I think first of all, the heart of storytelling, I think a lot of it comes from product marketing and brand. And that's why I'm so keen on companies starting with a really strong product marketing team or brand team and really kind of honing in what the message is that you're trying to communicate to the world. Performance marketing, of course, is imminently one of the most important things. But I think if you start there, then oftentimes you miss the storytelling and you get seen as a transactional brand. If you create the stories that people fall in love with, you get seen as something bigger than just a feature or a product and so on. And so I think storytelling is, is really at the heart of it. And the best way to use storytelling in my mind is for sure using the customer stories. It's imminently more interesting to hear what your customers are doing than what you're doing. I think if you want to create a true community, you want to create a true brand that people fall in love with, you tell those stories and you elevate those stories. And that could be anything from the individual level of how a single person benefits from using your technology to how the team benefits, to how the organization benefits, and how the world benefits. But hearing those stories and showing that we care more about your stories than our stories, we care more about your success than our success, I think is the best way to utilize storytelling. And over time, you you show to the world that 
we are really invested in your outcomes and your success and your community and how you're able to drive the business forward for your company more so than we care about what you're doing for my success. And I think that's, that's ultimately the best story time. doesn't mean you can't be successful if you focus on yourself. I just think that you miss a lot of opportunities for creating a, a long-term brand that adds long-term value. Yeah, I think you hit on a good point there in terms of like the starting with sort of like the transactional performance marketing versus the brand and the story. A lot of companies like really, it's kind of an afterthought to add product mm-hmm. marketing, which I'm sure you yeah. think is interesting. I think it's interesting coming from sort of a long history of being a product marketer. When I was hiring demand people in the past, I struggled really on finding people who understood the importance of the message. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot mm-hmm. of demand people just think, oh, I'm going to spend X amount of money in X amount of channel, et cetera, to basically get my leads and sort of like drive the pipeline. And inherently, they're not successful if they don't have a good message, right? Yeah, so, yeah, like, right. you know, you see these demand marketers like knocking their head on the wall and you're like, yeah, you don't have a good message. So like, you're yeah. not going to like drive the pipeline. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's like, what's the exactly. point? But I think a lot of companies have founders and like a history of starting with like a product idea, right? Like you don't have mm-hmm. anything if you don't have the product. And so okay. then you start and you need to kind of describe to people like, well, what is your product? So I think mm-hmm. product marketers also get stuck in like talking about features versus mm-hmm. what you were just talking about, which is like if the customer tells a story about the value, mm-hmm. like it really has interest. So like how do you make that transition, do you think, from like feature-based product marketing up to like really talking to the value? And is it a transition over time or is it like you mm-hmm. should really start in one place versus the other? Well, this, I think this is such an interesting question and why there's so much, I think, tension around this question as well is because, of course, you need performance marketing to keep the business going because you see instant results. That's why so many CEOs want to lean into it right away. Let's do more on performance marketing. You heard from heads of sales or CROs as well. Let's do more performance marketing because you see instant results. Product marketing takes a little bit longer because you have to figure out what the stories are. What is that we want to highlight? What do we want to lean into? You got to A-B test that and you got to certainly mine those stories over time. And I think it just takes a little bit longer. So I think you have to do both in parallel. It's not one or the other, but over time, as you start getting way more deep into why customers are buying your technology or your product or platform, what the benefits are for them, then you should start leaning into amplifying those stories a lot more. You know, I kick in on the last, I would say, four months, five months since leaving WeWork, I've spent a lot of time with, with various startup companies. And their CEOs, you know, through various VCs who introduced me. And it's been a lot of fun actually kind of being able to advise on, on marketing and go to market and so on. And so many of them, they oftentimes come to me and say, well, we struggle with the results of our performance marketing. It seems like we're not getting the results that we need or we, we expect. And, and the leads that are coming in are not quite the quality that we want and so on. And then I ask them usually, well, what story are you telling? And they're kind of like, well... I don't know, we're just buying keywords or showing up with our you know, ads and these different sites. I'm like, well, if you haven't figured out the story yet, you can just keep pumping money into performance marketing, but the results you're going to get are not going to be the best results in the world. Or the people that end up signing up for your service or product oftentimes end up churning at a much higher rate because they haven't fallen in love with the story that it is that you're trying to tell because you haven't proven that you've earned that business. And so I think you have to actually peel everything back and start even earlier and say, well, what is it that you're trying to do? The best marketing really starts with two fundamental questions, which is why do you need this product and why do you need it now? Those are the two questions that you have to answer. And so much marketing out there, I think, misses that second point. A lot of great marketing out there 
And a lot of really smart people are really good at answering the question of why do you need this product? They're really invested in the story of the technology or platform, but very few are really good at answering why now. And unless you can create that urgency, then, you know, if you think about all the people that you're trying to sell to or market to, they're so busy and they're so overwhelmed with information. And if you haven't given them a good excuse to why they should move now or why they can't live without this, it's very hard to actually get anything that's meaningful besides the transactional sale. And so I just think focusing on that, peeling the, the layer back a little bit and starting there, it's, it's not a bad thing for founders and CMOs to do. And then when you think about once you've answered that question, why now? I think you have to be able to do something that's completely unique that you can't get anywhere else. And so that's your job in marketing. It's our job in marketing to figure out what those things are. You have to be able to identify yourself as being either the first to do something or the best to do something or the only one that does something. If you can't say one of those three things, then you haven't honed your message closely enough, right? Because then everybody else can come in and say they're doing it better than you. So you have to be able to say, well, Drift is the first company to do this, or we're the only company that let, lets you do this. And ideally, you tell it through customers, right? Because that's even more powerful. But you really have to think about your messaging at such a deep level. If it doesn't come through with that urgency and clarity, then I think you just give people an excuse to punt and keep punting and punting and punting, and then you'll never be successful. Yeah, 100%. It's interesting that you talk about this, like, why now? Why us? I think it's mm-hmm. like that's like the epitome of like, what does product marketing need to do? I think product marketing is interesting. I have two categories of product marketing. I have like the mm-hmm. 101 of product marketing, which is sort yeah. of like that and also like messaging the features. And yep. then I think product marketing, it's also like working with the analysts and the competitive sure. and other things. So like, how do you view product marketing? Like, what would you put into that bucket? And then also... I think today most people want to feel like they're making a difference. So how would you measure the success of product marketing? Well, let's start with the first one, the first question around how, what I would put into the bucket of product marketing. It's a great question. At the core of it, I think it's a lot of positioning and messaging. I think product marketing should own that, especially in a B2B environment. Product marketing should also really be responsible for any launch that goes out, really the coordination of that launch and really the message of the launch itself. But there's a lot more that goes into product marketing. I would also put competitive analysis and market analysis Mm -hmm. into product marketing. Sometimes it's a part-time job for somebody who is a product marketing manager. And if you're a bigger organization, you really have to make it a full-time job because it can be so overwhelming trying to keep tabs on what all your competitors are doing and outmaneuver them in interesting ways. But competitive analysis is a critical thing. It's oftentimes the thing that that is the most immediate for sales because that's how they win deals. So competitive and market analysis is super important. I would also put in there certainly analyst relations, I think is a, is a key part of product marketing as well. And then sometimes certain organizations I've been at, you've also had customer marketing, customer, customer stories, stories customer, customer marketing, both customer marketing and customer stories, because they're, they're so intertwined in how you go to market either in a launch or how you think about the core messaging, because yeah. you can't really separate it from the core of product marketing. What else would I put in there? Certainly sales enablement, I think is a huge, huge part of product marketing. And I think product marketing job is to be the salesperson's best friend. doesn't mean we work for sales, but it means that it's our job in product marketing to ensure that sales has everything they need to be successful. The right competitive information, marketing information, pricing information, pitch decks, of course, analyst information, all those things. It's our job to make sure that sales has that. And it's sales' job to make sure that they close the deals, of course. Right? Yeah. <laughs> it's our job to make sure that we give them the support to do so. And so I think sales enablement should live within product marketing. I think sales productivity, scaling that across business, especially when you have multiple geographies, should, be, should live in sales. So oftentimes in small companies I've worked for, 
sales enablement and sales productivity is kind of one function, but in bigger companies, oftentimes you split out sales enablement into one function that's under product marketing and sales productivity under sales. And would you put in the sales productivity, like the traditional training of how do you do a great first call and like just exactly. like the skills like skill set, stuff? skill set, skill exactly. Set like yeah. how, how, do, how do you negotiate a get great deal? How to do a first yeah. discovery call? How to ask the right questions? How to deposition and so on and, and do that at scale because it's really tough because the product marketing team is often small and they have so many things on their plate. So it's really tough oftentimes to go around and train a thousand sales reps, let's say around the world. So you have to use a sales productivity team that's usually in region who can go and do that. But they also do more sales productivity also does a lot of the skills-based training as well. Yeah, I think that's something that I've seen across companies is like the need to actually clarify what are you talking about in enablement? Like, is it understanding right. the product and the story and the personas and all that stuff? Mm-hmm. Or is it the actual skills? Because you definitely right. have to do both. I mean, right. everybody needs to grow their skills, whether it's the marketer or the salesperson. Like, what are those actual inherent skills for every single role? Well, what about the measurement? Like, I think when we were starting at Salesforce together, mm-hmm. We didn't have a lot of measurement, to be honest. With product marketing. It was like, <laughs> right, if like right. the launch is happening and there's like great traffic yeah. to the website and the events are full okay. and we get a like four out of five or actually like that would be terrible. So if you get like a 4.9 out of five, then like yeah, yeah, product marketing yeah. is doing a great job. But I think it's evolved a lot over time. I mean, everything yeah. in marketing has evolved to be much more, you know, measurable and like really sure, tied sure. back to the business. So what are the various things you tie product marketing back to the business? It's a really good question. And, and it's one of the hardest things, I think, about being in product marketing. Most of the other disciplines within marketing are fairly easy to measure, I think. Yeah. But product marketing has traditionally been one of the harder ones. But I also think if you break it down into its subcategories, it becomes a little easier. So if it's competitive analysis, then you could say, well, how we move the win rate, for example, versus yep. certain competitors. I think that's, a, that's an obvious one. Or how often are we delivering new pieces of competitive material to the sales reps to be successful? So you can probably break it down that way. If you're in customer stories and customer marketing, you can probably say, well, how often is certain customer stories being used to win deals? And how many clicks are we getting on these customer stories when we post them on social, on our website, and so on? How much traffic are they driving? Same with analyst relations. You know, How are we showing up with the analysts? How many times are we being mentioned in certain reports? Are there now categories around this? Is there a magic quadrant and a wave and so on? And then I think from just poor, pure positioning and messaging, I think a lot of product marketing is also owns content in many organizations. So you can start measuring the content that is being created. Is it being used both internally if it's for sales and externally if it's for customers and how that's driving conversions. An interesting thing that you can do and I've been looking at doing in, in my teams is product marketing is oftentimes responsible for creating content with other teams within marketing. But that content, usually if you're in a B2B scenario, there's a lot of different pieces of content that moves a customer to the buying cycle. Well, if the conversion rate is high, that means oftentimes the content is working from stage one to stage two to stage three to stage four and so on because you have a piece of content. And I think that would be an interesting way of actually measuring and also probably having KPIs for, for product marketing to see how effective the content really is. I would ask you, what are you seeing? You know, it's such an well, that's what I was going to say. Like one, what I decided to do is to give partial ownership of share of voice to product marketing, mm-hmm. because yep. I think one of the key things, like you said, is to have like this differentiated messaging and positioning. But it means okay. also working with product to have like decent offerings that map toward the needs in the market as well. And so we want to make as much noise as possible about the fact that we have this mm-hmm. like great 
why us, why now? So I have set up the team to really be measured on the things you mentioned, but at the highest mm-hmm. level on share a voice. And that also translates into like the growth of web traffic. Totally. So yeah. And I mean, launches is of course a key part of product marketing. So there's so many things you can measure about a launch. How many press hits did you get out of it? How many customers signed up for your either GA or, or beta program, if you had one of those, and uh, how many people showed up to your event? There's lots of things. Some of them, I think I would say marketing, product marketing influences and yeah. other things are more owned, should be owned by product marketing. But I think the future of of any well-run organization, honestly, is shared KPIs. And again, so sometimes we influence certain things if you're in product marketing, other times you completely own it. But in order to have a well-run project, whether that's a big launch, which includes pretty much anyone in the company, customer success, sales, and so on, a lot of shared KPIs, I think, is a way of actually streamlining how you go to market with that and making sure that everyone is aligned and on the same page. Yeah, I totally agree. That was when I joined Drift, the one metric for marketing was pipeline. And the Mm. one person who spoke about it was the performance marketing team. And so I felt like more than half my team didn't really wake up every day feeling like they were making a difference. And so what I did was like marketing is still accountable to pipeline. And we did that because Mm. like really we want to be accountable to the closed deal, but we wanted Mm. to measure people to something that they themselves could impact. And then I broke down the rest of the team so that everybody has something that contributes to pipeline. So like share a voice yeah, in, in growth and website traffic like mm-hmm. contributes to pipeline, but like it's something that, that those teams can specifically own versus right. like here's the piece of content and then did it convert to mm-hmm. pipeline or didn't it, which is then dependent on a right. little bit of the performance marketers of like where did they promote it and how much promotion mm-hmm. and dollars did they put behind it, et cetera. Totally. And they just get less finger pointing. I mean, I think the classic scenario a decade ago between sales and marketing, even within marketing, it's a lot of like, did you do that? Did I do that? Who's responsible? But I think nowadays people are just waking up to the fact that we'll get much better outcomes if we actually start sharing the KPIs. And it could be certainly within marketing, but also beyond marketing, I think it makes a lot of sense. I just think I've seen so many times in my two decades in Silicon Valley, just finger pointing because there's not a shared goal or shared commonality around what the goal should be. And so I'll do everything I can to try to create some of those shared goals. It doesn't mean every goal has to be shared. I think that's also a misnomer. But if a lot of them are shared, it means at least we are aligned on what the big strategic initiatives are for, for the business. Yeah. So one of the things I think that's interesting, like probably you see this at the CMO level, is like you have your team and there's like a lot of different things that marketers do, right? Like we've talked about yeah. a, lot, a lot of different roles. And across that, there's a lot of asks across marketing. It's like a never ending like bucket of asks, right? Like employee brand team wants help like doing recruiting events. And then the sales team <laughs> is finger pointing that they don't have enough pipeline. And then like the CS team, whatever, it just goes on and on. So I'm curious, like in the different companies you've been in, Mm-hmm. especially like WeWork. I think WeWork in terms of like business model and what they were doing is like a different outlier than let's like your typical enterprise SaaS. Like, mm-hmm. do you see different structures in the company in terms of like how marketing is structured, where they report, mm-hmm. et cetera? And like, how does that impact like how many different things you're trying to like deflect in terms of what you're being asked? To do? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a great question. A lot of it depends on if you have also, I think it's a CEO who cares about marketing. You know, yeah. Let's be honest. Sometimes you have CEOs who are just focused on the product side of things and really think marketing doesn't add too much value. So I think the first step is aligning yourself with a CEO who, who understands and loves marketing because that certainly proves that you can be successful. And if not, then you have probably different tactics that you can take. But I would say in, in general, most of the companies that, that I've spoken to and what I advise is that the CMO should always report to the CEO. If it's a really big company, maybe the COO, 
I would be very hesitant to join a company if, or advise anybody to create a structure where the marketing team works under sales because then it becomes so uh, numbers and metrics driven. Yeah. A lot of times you, you end up taking the long-term planning out of it for how do you create a brand? How do you, let's create a, a, a big event next year that's going to cost a lot of money, but it's actually going to have a huge impact on our brand and our pipeline, but it's, it seems far away. That doesn't oftentimes get the attention it needs if you're just under sales where it's you know much more around quarter to quarter. So I would be a, a huge advocate of putting marketing anywhere, but there it shouldn't be under sales. It shouldn't be under finance. I don't think it should be under the CEO or it should be under maybe the COO. That would be my recommendation. Most of the structures within marketing are fairly similar. It depends a little bit on B2B versus B2C, I would say. And you can add the complexity of international. Does international role under the local GM or just a role under into an international structure? There are pros and cons of doing both. I've tried both in my career and both can work equally well. Again, it comes down to communication and alignment of KPIs more than anything. The big one that's oftentimes discussed whether or not it should be in marketing or, or not is communications. Is communications directly in marketing or does it sit outside, especially financial communications, but even just kind of comms in general, when you have executive communications and financial communications. I've seen that where it sits outside of marketing. I think that can be fine too, because it's a different kind of communications, but if it's product communications or customer stories, it should absolutely sit in marketing. Yeah, definitely. You've touched on the product marketing value. We talked about performance mm -hmm. marketing value. I think one of the things that you were always great at at Salesforce, and you've talked a little bit about it here, is like the story in the brand and like really making it different. And so one of the things you always did well was what I would call like shiny object creation. <laughs> I don't know if that's like a Salesforce term or not, like what's the shiny object so that people will like care about you. But like, what's your advice on really like, not just having this unique story, we've talked about that already, mm -hmm. but on like creating something that really creates a moment almost in the market so yeah. that people will pay attention to you and your brand. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. It's funny, you don't hear many other companies talk about shiny object marketing. So it might be a Salesforce term, but... I think a lot of it comes down to focus. It really does. And it's one thing I've tried to do in my career is make sure that the team has really deep focus on achieving one or two things really well. If you put the clock forward a year, nobody's going to remember you or the team for doing 10 things. It's just not going to happen. They're not going to remember you for five things probably, but maybe, maybe two things, maybe three, but at least one. So I would say Focus all your energy on doing one thing really well. So when I was at Salesforce, for example, and when we worked together, I was, I was working on Chatter with a great team over there. And the thing that, that we did was we said, every six weeks or so, we're going to relaunch Chatter. And the reason we came up with that playbook was because I'm a firm believer that people don't remember you for hearing something once. People, you know, attention span is very scattered. And we knew that when we launched Chatter, it was not going to be a crazy revenue driver, but it was going to be a crazy differentiator for anything else that was in the market. But in order for that to stick, we had to come out and consistently have news in the market around what it is that we were doing. And so every six weeks or so, we would have a new announcement around Chatter. It was always, and, and we said, okay, here's the roadmap for doing that over a period of one and a half years or so. So it was a very intense time frame to go out and do new launches every six weeks or so. And, and the team was tired after that period of time. But it also made us, you know, the stock price nearly doubled in that, that time because it suddenly put Salesforce in a different category than Oracle or SAP or Microsoft because there was a social angle to the CRM system that was really interesting to talk about. You know, we got more press coverage than any of our competitors by far because there was a new kind of interesting angle around this social angle to it because we were calling it, it's kind of like a Facebook for work. 
And so we were saying, let's constantly have stories in the news about the impact that chatter can have on organizations. And so we would always try to take a different angle every six weeks or so, but we constantly just kept that going. And we did that because I think you know, the relaunch, relaunch, relaunch playbook is really, really powerful. Now, it's not easy to do in a lot of companies. That's why it's so hard, I think, teams to actually do because you get stuck with, we have to do something urgently to this quarter. And so you have to come in and communicate very clearly to your stakeholders and the rest of the executive team that this is your plan and this is how you're going to execute over the next year, year and a half. Because if you want something to really stick and make a huge impact and create a brand around it, then it takes longer than just a quarter. I mean, I don't know of any brands that have done it in a quarter or two. It just takes a consistent effort. It's a lot of work, but I think that focus on one thing, doing one thing really well, I think is what has served us really, really well. And us coming from Salesforce, you and me and others and so on, I think I've taken that to heart. It's not, we're not trying to do too many things. I think oftentimes you get just too diffuse in, in what you're focusing on. Nobody's going to remember it. It's going to be kind of half-assed and you're not going to be proud of the effort that you're going to put into it because you're going to be peanut buttering your, your effort over so many different initiatives. Rather do one or two things really, really well and put all your effort into that. Yeah, I totally agree. And I I mean, more so even agree about this like repetition, especially in the past 10 years since I've known you, like the world has just become more and more and more noisy. And mm-hmm. like people just don't remember. Like you have to say the same thing and you have to say the same thing again. And then you have to say the With same thing again. consistency, exactly. And like, exactly. I mean, I feel like as a marketer, it almost feels boring because you're like, no, no, yep. no, I said this last <laughs> week right. and I said it last month. But you're like, oh, okay, the people outside my walls and outside my company, they actually like have not heard this yet. It's hard to imagine, but like they literally haven't heard it. Even if I spoke to them directly last week, like I have to come back and like reiterate it and things like that. And I think, you know, we're having a big conversation internally about like, how do you in a remote environment, even more so like reiterate things to people. I was talking to somebody and they were saying, oh, like now that we're all working from home, you're like almost more focused because you're like one-to-one, you can see in the Zoom, like what's a person doing? But then at the same time, you're not focused because you have all these other things going around in your house and you know, like I need to get off this call because I have to go to my see my kid or whatever. And so like following up with like the notes and like what are the action items? What did we agree? Saying it again, like it just gets back to that same simple principle of like say it again, say it again. I always try to divide my time into kind of three different categories. I spend my time on tactical things, strategic things, and epic things. And the tactical things, I think, are the things that keep the light going and keep the business functioning. Well, we update the website with a new blog post, or you know, I'll answer these emails, or I'll help with, you know, with something that's kind of urgent and so on. But if you only focus your time on tactical things, that's not how you create a super brand. That's not how you create a brand or story that people fall in love with. So you have to spend the majority of your time and I would call the strategic initiatives, the, the initiatives that require a team effort, a really concerted effort over a period of time. It could be like the chatter launch, like you talked about. I would say that was super strategic, borderline epic because of what, what we did over such a period of time. But we're really getting the team together and say, we're going to put a program out there or a campaign out there. It's going to be consistent for the next year. It's going to require funding, creativity, all kinds of things. That's how you create a real momentum for the business, something that people start remembering. And then you also have to focus on, I would say, the epic initiatives, which are the the rare things that the crazy ideas that you have that can really change the business 10x. You know, I define epic as either you find something that's so broken that people have done before and say, it's so crap, we can do it 10 times better, or you try to do something that's never been done before. But it's scary being in that category because there's not much data to guide you. You know, if you're just doing incremental things all the time, 
then you have a lot of data to guide you say, oh, if we do this 10% better, 10, 20% better, we're going to get much better outcomes. Great. And you should absolutely do that. But if you want to create the epic outcomes, you also have to take some chances on some things that have never been done before or have been done so, so crappily before. And so, but you can't spend your whole time just like in la la land thinking about that because then you kind of neglect the business as well. So you have to start dividing your time. That's at least what I do. I say, I'm going to try to spend 20% of my time on tactical things, 60% of my time on strategic things. And then I'll also have to set aside some time to work with the team on what epic things can we do? Because if you don't set aside that time, it'll never happen. Because yeah, it doesn't happen, happen in isolation. No, because you get so busy with other things. I mean, if it was easy, everybody would do it. And it doesn't just happen automatically. It's not like you get a good idea and let's you execute within an, a, a day or so. You have to set aside the time with you and your team to do that. And those are the fun moments. Because the worst for me, and I've had way too many, many of these experiences in my career, when I get to Friday night and I'm hanging out with my family or my friends, and I look back on my week and I felt crazy busy but I don't really know if I achieved anything of note because I was just fighting fires. Everything was tactical. And I'm like, it's the worst weeks. So I've tried to become better as I've grown in my career to, to really focus on the, at least the strategic initiative that we have to move forward as a team that will really make a difference for the business. So that's how I would think about breaking it down. Yeah. What Can you give the audience an example of an epic thing that you did like somewhere across any of the companies you've been? Just so they get a sense of like what what kind of risk did you take or like what was the sort of impact of something? The example that you and I chatted about with Chatter was probably one of the most epic things. I mean, it kind of created my name in the industry in some way. You know, when Fox came looking for me, they basically said, whatever you did for Salesforce and Chatter, come do it for us. Because I think I'd created kind of a name for for leading the effort there. But it was it was hard. I mean, required, it's not like I did it alone. The team was incredible and like the execution that we maintained this for a good year and a half of just hardcore execution around making sure that we were constantly thinking of creative ways to tell the story. Because again, it's it's easier to just fall into telling the story the same way. I think you also have to have different angles for it. And so I think that that was probably one of the things that I'm most proud of in my career. That's awesome. Now, like you went, we said Salesforce, Box, you were at Vera, you were at LinkedIn, <laughs> then you're at LinkedIn, like, oh, I'm in this like secure place. It's going to be great. And all of a sudden you get this call you should come work at WeWork. So <laughs> one of the things that since you were at WeWork, you could talk about WeWork if you want or not, but since you were at WeWork, I think you had this like aha moment of like, what is a healthy company? Yeah, yeah. And I, and I know so. you're like very opinionated on like how <laughs> companies should basically be measured, not just on like bottom right. line. But so like, can yeah. you share with the audience like your perspective on like a healthy company, like the role, like we're seeing now, like tons mm. of companies are like, pitching in millions of dollars to help with yeah, yeah, the yeah. Like, effort to fight coronavirus and everything. Like what's your perspective on like the role of a corporation and like as a person like looking for a new job, like what is a healthy mm. company? It's a great question. And I think, yeah, I would say I'm somewhat opinionated. <laughs> I think, you know, of course, companies measure their health by revenue and profits. And they also measure, you know, how much churn they have and so on, which I think are all important. And I, I, absolutely every company should continue measuring that. But I also think, that we should be measuring companies' long-term value by how much value they deliver to their customers. And it's something that's very hard to quantify, but I'll give you an example. I pay $10 a month for Spotify. It's probably the best $10 a month I spend every single month. I would pay $100 for Spotify because of the joy that it gives me and the, the joy I had, uh, uh, so it just makes my life infinitely better. It's hard to measure. I think so many times I see these articles of, oh, somebody got fundraising at this valuation because they're growing this fast. And my question is, oh, well, well, what value are you delivering to your customers? Obviously, they must be delivering a lot of value, else they wouldn't get that valuation. But 
are you delivering something that's essential and needed and makes their life better, happier, more joyful in some way? And so I just think there's, there's more ways that we should be measuring the health of businesses. I have an, an iPhone, right? A lot of people would say the iPhone is super expensive. I'm like, yeah, it is expensive, but it also gives me an incredible amount of utility and joy compared to my laptop. It costs as much as a laptop, but I use it way more. Not only does it serve as my device that I use all the time, but I can take pictures on it. I can watch movies on it. I can listen to music. I mean, it's, I can play games. It's, there's so much I can do on that device that when you look at it that way, the value you get out of it is infinitely, I think, nearly more valuable than a laptop for a different reason. And so I just think that there's, there's ways of reevaluating the work we put on companies because I think that the world has gotten skews where it's just about multiples of revenue that you have and that's how, how companies are, are, are valued in the stock market and so on. But what about asking the question of, well, if you look at the, let's say, Fortune 100, what value are they delivering to, to companies out there or to individuals? I think that's a, that would be an interesting way of looking at it. I don't have a great answer for how we're going to do that, but I just yeah. think it's something that investors should be looking into. Well, I think there's another thing, and I've talked with you about it before, which is also not just like what is the value that the company is delivering to their customers, but like what mm-hmm. is the value the company is delivering to society? Yes, absolutely. absolutely. And like what's your perspective on that in terms of like valuation almost? It's like I, I think the mm-hmm. two are often thought of as being in conflict with each other in terms of like can you actually deliver value in terms of like a foundation or like mm-hmm. purpose in like this in the communities that you exist in? if you have offices in San Francisco and New York and Boston, et cetera, like are you doing things locally in those environments as well as like driving your product and your profits and things like that? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a really good question. It's, it's hard to answer. I think it's super timely, especially with the coronavirus pandemic going on right now and everyone being sequestered home. I think a lot of us are reevaluating the value that we think about certain things in our life. For example, I think all of us are really showing a much more appreciation for teachers, hospital workers, if you're a nurse or a doctor or something like that, or police and everybody who a lot of times are being underpaid, but the value that they serve is just freaking immense. I mean, how does society even function without these? And then you have flip side, a lot of people who are making a lot of money and you can kind of start questioning what the value that they realize. That's on the personal level. And it's the same, I think, on the organizational level as well, like which organizations are really essential and which ones are not. I I would say, you know, one of the things that I realized is I haven't been using Facebook a lot, for example, in the last couple of years, because I feel like it's just become kind of a a divisive platform for many reasons. But during this time of crisis, I got to say, I've been on Facebook a lot more because it nearly has become a public utility that we all use all the time to stay connected. So there's a lot of value in it from a connectivity perspective. And if you use it for the good that it was meant for, it's really powerful if you take away all the negative that has happened on Facebook and Twitter and so on, these platforms are really powerful for us. And now we're getting back to what they were really meant for, I think, in really positive ways. I like to have the perspective that like out of adversity, you can always have opportunity. And it's interesting to see like in this current time, like what is happening, right? Like with pollution being reduced by like less planes, less people driving around, et cetera. Like I've just been awed by the videos of like the dolphins swimming in Venice canals. Like I never knew that like dolphins used to swim in the Venice canal. I mean, like it's like, doesn't even like, I don't think Venice dolphins. I don't know. And so, I mean, interesting to see. And then I've seen like the pictures like, oh, 
oh, you know, like three months ago, here's a family sitting at home and they're like all on their devices. Nobody's actually even talking to each other. And then now it's like, oh, people are playing board games and they're doing puzzles. And it's just really interesting to see like in an adverse time, like what positive things can come out of it, which I think is just really, it's just a great thing given that obviously everybody's kind of suffering in some way such an interesting moment in time, really, for all of us. We're, we're learning to adapt to a new reality. I think the positive of what's happening is we're all showing a lot more empathy and understanding for each other. And we're all getting to realize that we're not just co-workers. We're actually real human beings yeah. who have families and who have other things outside of their work environment that they need to focus on. And I think it's just bringing a lot more compassion and humanity to the workplace, which is great. And I hope we don't lose that. So I'm, I'm very hopeful about what the future looks like. That's one of the challenges and things that I think is happening with marketing, especially B2B. In the past, B2B marketing is like you're a company talking to a company. In a lot of cases, people don't focus on the fact that it is human. And that's one of like my big sayings is like, oh, it's not really B2B or B2C, it's B2H. And like (laughs) as a great marketer, as a storyteller, you have to really be able to identify like, who are you talking to and how are you talking Mm -hmm. to the human that's on the other end? Like, even if it is somebody at a company, it's like companies don't buy from companies, humans buy from humans, they just work in companies. Totally, totally. There's fierce debate right now around the marketing around coronavirus, especially on LinkedIn, there's a lot of great threads on, on this topic. The consensus from everybody who is in marketing, who's leading a marketing team is, you know, you try to come across as authentic and you try to come across as being helpful and you use the stories of your your customers to show the power of what it is that you do versus trying to go in for the hardcore sale about talking about yourself. This is not a good moment in time to do so. I think you can actually lose a lot of brand value if you come across that way right now. So it's a delicate time. It doesn't mean you can't market or sell yourself. That's, that's our jobs and the world still has to function. I just think it's a way of doing it. It has to be a lot more authentic and empathetic to, to what we're going through as a, as a human race right now. Yeah, I think the, the whole concept of empathy, I think it's like even a whole nother level of like that human, right? It's like you can talk yeah. to a person as a human versus talking with a bunch of jargon and like company talk and whatever, but then like to really demonstrate the empathy of sort of the current environment. And I think like that's the ultimate in marketing is to be able to like connect with somebody in a way that has empathy, has authenticity, and actually like has this ability to like really show that you care about them. And it's not just like one message for like every person under the sun. One thing we didn't really talk about and I think could become unfortunately important right now. So one question I have for you is, you know, you move from big companies to little companies. And I think that, you know, a lot of people are always wondering, like, should I go to like the big secure company? Is it more interesting and fun to be in a small startup? Like, you know, do I want to take that journey? Just quickly, like, what would your perspective be on like moving from company to company and the size? It's a great question. I get the question a lot, actually. And I think it's a really important one. It it all depends on what you're trying to achieve. So obviously, there are pros and cons of going to either. I've been, you know, I joined Vera in 2014 with eight employees, right? And I went there, you know, it was one of my first head of marketing gig where I ran all of marketing. And I went there because I wanted to go to an environment where I could experiment like crazy and try different things. I just had a CEO who said, yeah, whatever you want to do, go for it, right? Because I didn't know what I didn't know. I had certainly certain experiences, you know, and my experiences came a lot from product marketing and, and customer marketing and so on, category creation. But I didn't know a lot about, I would say, performance marketing or even communications at that point. I've been a part of it, but I never kind of owned it. So I wanted to go to an environment where I could experiment like crazy. So going to a small company, is super beneficial for that because they haven't figured out the playbook yet. So you get to experiment. If that's what you want to do, it's a great environment to go. If you want to go to a place that has it figured out, 
and you know has the playbook for things and you can learn from some of the best and oftentimes going to a big company is awesome if you want to go to learn how to do great b2b marketing salesforce is a great company to go to to do that but you'll be put into a box that's usually a little bit smaller. You won't have the freedom to go and try crazy things in the same way. You won't have the freedom to maybe go and do other things that are outside of your area. If you're in product marketing, you get to do product marketing. If you're in performance marketing, you get to do that. And that's okay as well. There's, there's nothing wrong with it, but it depends on kind of what it is that you're trying to grow from a skill set perspective. There's really no, no right or wrong answer at all. So it just depends on where you want to be in five or 10 years from now, what skill set you want to, want to have for that. Just think about, you know, when you come to a smaller company, you do have a lot of freedom because there are a lot of things have to be been figured out. That can be a, a huge negative as well because there's nobody there to guide you or tell you or kind of lean on. And if you go to a big company, let's take Apple, for example, amazing company, do great marketing, but you will not have a lot of freedom to do a lot of the things that you want to do at Apple. No, I mean, you can't mess with the brand. You can't right. do that in any way that you want to. The performance marketing is kind of set. The story that they have a playbook for everything. And that's totally fine. You will learn that and you can go and take it on to your, your next step. So it all depends really on what you, what you want to achieve. Okay. So the final question I want to ask you is, it kind of relates to this sort of like small, large company, et cetera. I was like, what is the one lesson that you think, the best lesson that you learned throughout your career that you could share mm-hmm. with everybody? So it's kind of like storyteller Robin gives us like lesson of the day. <laughs> Well, for me, it's been certainly the need to communicate, communicate, and then communicate some more. I always think of it this way. In the absence of information, people will make up their own stories about what's happening. It doesn't matter if it's your peers, if it's the leadership team around you, or if it's your team that reports into you. If you don't communicate frequently what it is that's happening and why, people will make up their own stories. And I think you just owe it to everybody around you to communicate why you're doing certain things and the expected outcomes of that. And every time I've succeeded in my career, it's because I feel like I've communicated really well. And of course, you have to execute on top of that, but you get everyone aligned on what it is that you're trying to do. And a lot of times when I've failed, it's because I haven't communicated well enough or the reasons why. So for example, one of the, the regrets I have in my career, I was at LinkedIn. I had a star performer who worked for me. She was just awesome. One of the best product marketing people I've ever worked with in my life. And she came to me and she had some frustrations about her role and why she wanted to move in to do something different. And I listened, but I didn't act on it quickly enough. And I think the signal she took away was I didn't care. And I did care, but I didn't communicate my feeling and I, and I didn't act quickly enough. So if I just communicate, say, hey, you know, I have more things that I'm working on right now and I'll get to it and I promise you I'll look into it and so on. But again, in the absence of information, people make up their own stories. So I'm sure that she took away like, oh, Robin doesn't really care about me or my career and so on. But at the times I've succeeded as well is because I've made sure that everyone is aligned on division, whether that was the chatter launch, everyone was aligned on, this is what we're going to do. Here's the time frame for when we're going to do it. Here's the team's job. And here's how we're going to execute on. And everyone just kind of signs off. And then you do regular check-ins and you update everyone frequently. That's how you succeed. So communicate, communicate, and then communicate some more and do it hopefully in a very epic way. Epic. Make sure it's a shiny object. Otherwise you might uh, get forgotten. (laughs) That's right. Awesome. Well, this has been a great conversation. I'm sure if people have other questions for you, like hopefully they've enjoyed the conversation, but they may want to have additional questions on growing their product marketing career or like other lessons that you've learned along the way. And so I think probably the best place for people to reach out to you would be in LinkedIn. I know you're very active in LinkedIn. I sure am. Please do. So find Robin in LinkedIn, new CMO of Matterport. 
I'm sure his profile is going to become very noisy because he's going to have lots of like congratulations about his new job, which obviously always puts you to the top of the list. So thank you for joining us on this episode. I'm excited to continue building CMO conversations while we're all coming from our various homes and home offices. And if you enjoyed this episode and you have other people that you want me to speak to, reach out to me in LinkedIn and send me direct messages about questions and topics you want me to cover or people you want me to invite to be on the next episode and share with your friends. If you're on Spotify, which obviously Robin is, then you can listen to CMO conversations there. But if you have another platform that you like, like we basically have CMO conversations across every single platform. The more that you like it, the more you can like rate it up, the more that we'll be able to share these great conversations with other marketers and hopefully make a big difference in people navigating their careers and really dealing with the changes that are happening day to day for the marketer. So thank you for joining us. Thank you, Robin. Thank you. We'll be right back.